But open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. Last week we started a very a, a brief series. It's two weeks. It's last week and this week. Uh, entitled, It's Finished. And uh, the, the, whole, the message last week was on Jesus' triumphant entry. And we had a picture up there, which probably came from a, a movie, of, uh, of imagining Jesus' triumphant entry on a donkey into Jerusalem and all the celebration of what that meant. And it was a preparation for the message today. This is not what, as a pastor, I would call a typical Easter message. A typical Easter message is on the power of the resurrection, what the resurrection means. But I think what happens so often is we get excited on Easter morning and Resurrection Day about what the resurrection meant, and we go out of here unchanged. We go out of here and say, that was a nice service. Wasn't that wonderful? Pastor was on today, or pastor wasn't quite so on today, or, or it was all, it's an experience, and then it's over. What I want to share with you is something that God's begun to do in my life. I've been a Christian for 40 years. But in the process of that, my walk with the Lord, there are things that I've struggled with and struggled under. And in many ways, I just kind of learned to settle for it. But it affected areas of my life. It affected my ability to worship. It affected my, my confidence in prayer. And I learned to kind of handle those things, but never truly be free in them. Now, I may be the only person in the room that struggle with this, so I'm going to ask you just to bear with me and listen to my story, uh, but I suspect I'm not the only one in the room because I don't believe the Spirit would have me do this today if I were. And, and I'm just laying that by way of background so that you can see as we go through this. This is something that I'm learning as we go, as I'm going, and this is something that I believe God wants me to share with you. So to do that, let's go back a week, and what we talked about last week was, was his triumphant entry in there. We talked about the fact that we're going to look at last week and this week through the eyes of these 12, really 11 disciples who had given up everything to follow him. One of them, of course, was Judas, and Judas didn't make it all the way through. But these other 11 made it all the way through. He, he called them individually, at least three or four, four of them were fishermen. Uh, one of them was a tax collector. Um, I don't think there were any lawyers among them. Uh, <laughs> but a tax collector was in there. And, uh, uh, and he picked them from very common ways of life. But he chose them individually. He picked them. He invited them personally to come and follow him. And they didn't know what that meant. They just left everything and followed him. There was something about him that did it. Well, they didn't understand that what was about him is he was the son of the living God. And there was something about his person, something about his presence, something about that look with his eyes, that compassion, that love of God, the presence of God, that they just left everything. Matthew, Levi, just left his tax collector table and just walked off and left it all. And others left all to follow him. But they had hopes in the process, a hope that this was the Messiah, that this was the deliverer. And we talked, I don't want to go through all of that again this week that we went through last week. And that leads up to the triumphant entry when we call Palm Sunday. And they come in there and the city is just pouring out their adulation on him. They're throwing palm leaves out there. They're waving palm leaves, throwing their clothes in like a red carpet treatment. And then we saw last week how it began to go south for them very quickly. Right away, Jesus goes into the temple. And he gets angry, makes a cord of whips and throws the money changers out. And then he begins to challenge the Pharisees. And we looked at those things. He calls them names. Jesus, you know, we think Jesus is this, this just nice, soft, gentle guy. Read your Bible. He was sweet and understanding to some people, but some of them, he took a whip of cords and he drove them out of the church. And it culminated Friday night when they're arrested. He's arrested. We looked at Peter talk a little bit about him today. Peter, who, who, who again sets forth his commitment, I'll die for you or with you. And Jesus says, you won't even make it through the night without denying me three times. And we saw in that upper room, Jesus challenges the disciples now with statements that are challenging to them. He says, if, if, if a grain of wheat produced in order to produce anything has to die and go in the ground in the same way, you've got to die to who you are. And then he goes through this operation of washing their feet and telling them that they need to do the same for others. It's a humbling thing. In the process, we see Peter's pride. We see Peter says, no, Lord, you shouldn't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet is basically what he's saying. And Jesus said, if you don't humble yourself, 
and allow me to serve you, you can have no place with me. And Peter couldn't accept that. Peter was confident in himself. And what we looked at is the disciples looked at this week through human natural terms and human natural eyes. Jesus was now going to be triumphant in natural terms, but we looked at last week the triumph that God had in plan in sore was infinitely more important, infinitely more eternal than the triumph of an entry into Jerusalem. What God was about was the triumph over Satan and the destruction that he had brought upon mankind starting thousands of years ago. And we left off at that place where everything's fallen apart. The disciples are fr- afraid. They're hiding in an upper room. The disciples are, are, are hiding. Peter's dis- got to be absolutely despondent. This strong man is denied that he knows Christ, not to the Pharisees, but to some little girl who can't do anything really to harm him. He swore under one gospel account that he didn't know who he was. Can you imagine the despondency that Peter had? But his despondency was he was disappointed in himself. He was disappointed in his commitment to Christ. It was all about Peter. And under pressure, we find out what we're all about. And this is exactly where God wanted to position them. Because in order to experience resurrection life, in order to experience and experience, not know about, experience newness of life that God had for them, they had to die to who they thought they were. They had to die to their own efforts to produce something in their own lives. They had to die to their own wills in order to allow Christ to come into their lives. Just as Peter had to die to his ambition to make himself somebody so that Jesus could make him who he wanted to be. And that's where each one of us is today. And that positioned them for what God was going to do on that Resurrection Sunday. But to do that, let's go back. We're just going to look at Jesus on the cross here. John 19, verse 28. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's about, it's about the end of that third hour. At this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there. They filled it with a sponge of sour wine and put it on a hyssop, which was like a branch, a bush, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowed his head and released, gave up his spirit. I want you to see nobody took it from him. I was looking at a documentary yesterday and how what a tremendous persecution came against the Jews uh, uh, in the early, even the Great Crusades were against the Jews uh, because they were Christ killers. No, we were all Christ killers. The reason he died is to pay for our sin. God used the Pharisees, God used the Romans to do what God had to do in order to save us. He released, he gave up his spirit. So the question for today is, if it's finished, what's finished? What is it that's finished? That's what we're going to talk about today. What's over? What's done? What's finished? The Greek word here is tetelestai. It means it's over. Those of you that are basketball fans that have been around for a while, remember when the Celtics' great heyday, when Red Arbach was their coach? Am I the only one in the room that's old enough to remember that? He had some symbol he used. I guess they can't do this anymore. He had some symbol he used to let the other coach know and the team know he knew it was over. He would light up his victory cigar. But the, but, but the, the game wasn't over yet. The last moment of the clock hadn't ticked. The buzzer hadn't gone off. But the genius, the man knew it's over. It's over. Jesus declares it's finished. It's over. What's over? Well, there are a lot of things we could talk about that's over, that are accurate. The, 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 the age of the law was over. The, the, the fulfillment of prophecies, was, of some prophecies, was over. Satan's authority and rule in this realm was, was over. And those are wonderful things to study and look at, but there's something far more personal and, and important to us that was finished that we need to look at today. And that's what we're going to take a look at in the time that we have this morning.
To do that, so that we can all relate to this, let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. There's so many things start here. That's why it's called Genesis. Genesis means the book of beginnings. And we're just going to look at a couple of verses here. The, this is the last verse of chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2. This is so easy to miss this, but it's so powerful and profound. It says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, we immediately, because we're so carnal, think of having no clothes on. And I believe that's true. But it's far more than that. What is it about not having your clothes on that affects us so much? Because it exposes us, parts of us that are private, that we don't want others to see, but also some imperfections. Maybe our feet aren't the most pretty things in the world. Maybe we have a little weight in some places where we wish we didn't have, so we wear clothes that are designed so that's not quite so obvious. We become self-conscious, and suddenly, at this moment, I clap my hands, and all your clothes disappeared. Yeah, yeah. You'd become, you, you, some of you immediately just became self-conscious. I believe what the Spirit of God is saying in this verse is that they were not conscious of themselves. They may well have had no clothes on. Obviously, they didn't, because we'll see some things where God had to clothe them. But they didn't care. They weren't aware of themselves. They were so aware of God and God's presence, they were not aware of themselves at all. They were lost in who God is. And see, with our carnal thinking, we think, well, that's a loss. No, 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 no. To be absorbed in who God is in an infinite gain because it's the part of us that's self that keeps us from really knowing Him. Just as the part of Peter that was self was interfering with his really knowing, understanding why Christ came. This is the position where God intended man to be. They were totally exposed to God. They had no sense of shame. They had no sense of guilt. They had a total confidence before Him, and they were completely open and free in their relationship with Him. They could say anything on their mind, anything, without fear of God's anger, judgment, or condemnation. They were in total trust in Him. That whatever they desired, He was going to provide for them. There was such an intimacy and closeness. And there was no awareness of self to interfere with their oneness with Him. If it only ended there, we wouldn't need church. I'd be out of a job. I'd be back as a lawyer. No, we wouldn't need them either. I'd really be in trouble. But there's chapter 3. Chapter 3, Satan comes in, and we're not going to go back. I've done this before, go back over what his background was, but he comes in and his whole purpose is to ruin what God created. And the amazing thing is he didn't have to come up with some long, complicated plan. This is, this is important to listen for you. Because Satan's scheme is not complicated. His devices are not complicated. The Bible tells us that. There's no temptation that he uses against you that's not common to man. It's common, and it's common to man. All he needed to do was one simple thing, and the rest of it would happen on its own. All he had to do was to get their eyes off of God and begin to look at self. Because the moment they got their eyes off of God and began to look at themselves they began to establish themselves and see themselves separate from God. See, they didn't know they were separate from God. They didn't know they had a body that was apart from God. 
They were just so absorbed in Him. And this is hard for our minds to grasp because we've lived our whole life conscious of being, of being individuals and separate from God, separate from one another. This is the big battle in marriages. Because the Bible says that when you become married, a male and a female, that's the marriage God creates. That's the only marriage God creates. You become, two become one. And every problem in marriage has its roots in one or more of those marriage covenant partners seeing themselves separate from each other. So Satan comes in and all he's got to do is get them to look at themselves separate from God. So how does he do that? He does it by telling them God's, they can't trust God. First of all, he gets them to question God. I've got to be careful because I'll get bogged down here. Let me go through my notes. Okay. So let's look at verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Boy, is that so full of truth. So he's telling them, You're not really seeing reality. You're looking at God, but you're not seeing the total reality. And then he gets them to question God's motive and intention. God's keeping something from you. And God was keeping something from them. Because you see, God knows how He made us. He knows the limitations that He made in us. He did not make us to be independent and to live our lives on our own. He made us to need Him, and He made us to need one another. God did not make man, now listen carefully, God did not make man, including you or me, to be able to handle the knowledge of good and evil apart from Him. All you got to do is turn on the news today and you can see how well we handle the knowledge of good and evil apart from God. God didn't... Well, why, why would God not make us? Because all God wanted us to do was to stay in total communion with Him. He can handle the knowledge of good and evil. If we just obey Him and follow Him and keep our eyes on Him, we don't need to worry about good and evil because He'll already protect us from the evil and keep us in the good. So what was at stake here had nothing to do with good and evil. What was at stake was for them... Satan to tempt them to establish their own separate identity apart from the identity that was in God. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes and desirable to make one wise, make oneself wise. We talked about that a few weeks ago. She gave it to dum-dum, I mean her husband... Notice he was with her. He wasn't off tending to the weeds and the things in the garden. And he came home and she said, Here, dear. No, he was right there with her when Satan came to talk to her and he kept his mouth shut. Verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And look at the wonderful blessing that was. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Look at the fruit of that. Their eyes were opened to themselves. They became self-conscious as a result of this great new self-awareness, they hid themselves from God's presence. It's your consciousness of yourself that interferes with your communion with God. We'll see that as we go on. They became afraid. Fear entered in. Fear entered in because they now saw themselves separate from God and they had to protect themselves, maintain themselves, keep themselves on their own effort now and not allow God to do that for them. 
And because innately they knew they couldn't do that, they were afraid. The root of our fear comes from the same place. And they were ashamed of themselves. So fear, shame, and the hiding from God were the immediate result of simply looking at themselves and taking their eyes and their focus off of God. So what do they do? They tried to cover their own nakedness. This is so important for us. They tried to, they were aware of their faults. They were now aware of themselves separately. They realized what they'd done, so now they're going to kind of cover up what they've done wrong by going and cutting leaves and sewing for themselves clothing to cover their own nakedness. And this is really the root of the message today because this is what we all do so much of the time. We try to cover our own weaknesses, cover our own flaws, make up for our own failures, make up for the things we know are wrong in us. We try to make up for them by clothing we sew for ourselves. I don't mean literally this, by covering it over. Those leaves simply covered their nakedness. It did not resolve the rebellion that was now in their heart. Because you see, to choose to, se- to choose to separate from God was to not just reject God, but was to establish themselves. And they were establishing themselves as their own kingdom separate from God's kingdom. And that's the root of sin. The root of all sin is self. Self-independent of God. And there are many Christians walking in that because we want a relationship with God but we don't give up self. So what is what we do? We use God as a resource. Good preaching, Pastor. Just keep it. It's going well. We use God as a resource for when we get in trouble. We use God as a resource for comfort when we're discouraged. We use God as a resource so that we can take His compassion, His love, His healing, and bring some of that over into our kingdom and receive it on our terms. Aren't you glad God's merciful? They tried to cover their own nakedness with clothing they made for themselves. The root of their, of their own deliverance was designed to be carried out by self. It was their idea, it was their method of covering their nakedness. When God comes, He does something radically different. God slays an animal and covers them with the skin of the animal. Say, what's the difference? First of all, it, God did what He knew was right. God redeem them His way because man's way of redeeming himself didn't work and what he did required the shedding of blood because the Bible says without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins he covered their nakedness their rebellion, their sin, their separation from him with the life of a sinless animal as a precursor to what He was going to do for all of us. Now what's this got to do with us? You and I were born into that same family and we have embedded in us, irretrievably embedded in us, that same self-centeredness. Most of our good deeds are self-centered, so we feel good about ourselves. Most of the good things we do for others, and that's fine as long as we recognize much of them are because we'll feel good about ourselves. We come to the end of the day and we evaluate our day based on how good we've been. We have an image inside of our mind and our attitude, we may not be kind, of what, what, what being a good Christian means. And when we live up to it, we feel good about ourselves. When we don't live up to that image, we don't feel good about ourselves and it affects our confidence in prayer. I've shared this before. Years ago I was in here on a Wednesday afternoon. It was right before, it was right before Wednesday night service. It been one of those days I just didn't have time. I didn't take the time to set aside and really to study. 
and I was going to go on something that I'd already seen without any real preparation. And I'm walking right past here, except it was the old runner that we had here. He said, God, I'm sorry I didn't, have a, didn't spend the time today getting ready. I'm really, I'm really not worthy to be in the pulpit tonight. And right here he stopped me. He says, so when do you think you are worthy? But that's our thinking. I didn't do enough, or I haven't done enough, or I've done the wrong things, or I didn't have the right thoughts, or I'm... But notice who the focus is on. Just as in the garden, it's on me and what I've done and who I am and have I... Just like Peter was. Lord, I'll go to the... I'm so committed to you, I'll die with you. That's so embedded in us. And this side of heaven, I'm going to t- you'll never fully get rid of it. But there's a solution. There's an answer. And this is what we're looking at this morning. Because that's what's finished. We're born into the same deep root of self. And it is the root of all sin. The things we do, lying, cheating, all that stuff, that's the fruit of the sin. The root of it is self. Because we do that to promote ourselves, protect ourselves, advance ourselves, whatever it is, but it's all ultimately about me. And exalting self, sin itself is its essence, is an elevating me above God. And that's rebellion in God's eyes. And according to Romans 5.10 and in Hebrew, in Romans 8, it makes me God's enemy. I was a nice person. I was a nice person. I was even nice as a lawyer. I didn't steal. I didn't cheat. I didn't, you know, most of the time. And I was pretty, pretty, I was a good, I liked myself. I was a good person. That's what got in my way. I wasn't like some of you. <laughs> you knew you were sinners. I didn't, I'm doing fine, my life is, I got a beautiful wife, I've got at that point two two kids growing up, I've got a great profession, good income, nice house, I mean life's good. God's blessing me, I must be on the right track. It's full of self-centeredness, so... we have built into us a sense of guilt because somewhere inside we know we're not right. There was a... Oh boy, i got to move on. There was a... Um, right around the time I got saved, um, there was a book that came out called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Anybody remember that? And that, see, the root of that book is trying to deal with this problem. And I remember reading through the book and I realized all they're doing is playing games with each other. Because basically the way the book worked, it says, I'll believe you're okay if you believe I'm okay. It's like the emperors who wore clothes. You know? Right. you know, let's just pretend we're both okay, and then so we'll, we'll be okay. That gets rid of the guilt. The problem is, I knew I wasn't okay. I knew I wasn't. And there's a weight, a burden that comes with that. Those of you who are here and watch The Pilgrim's Progress a few weeks ago on a Friday night and if we're here and saw the presentation last, last year that we did of the Pathway Home and we've read Pilgrim's Progress. This is the burden that Christian carried around on his back. He carried this burden, this heavy load on it, and it's guilt. It's this pressure of trying, knowing somewhere inside I'm not measuring up, knowing somewhere inside I'm not good enough. Maybe if I try this, that'll make me feel better. Maybe if I go to church today on Easter Sunday, that'll make me feel better. Maybe if I pray more, that'll make me... Maybe if I, maybe if I do this, I'll feel better. It'll relieve this. And it was never relieved until he came face to face with the cross. And in the story, the burden falls off of his back the weight, and it falls into the open tomb to be lost forever. It's the pride of our flesh that has to contribute something of ourself to our relationship with God. We want some credit. We want to feel at least a little good about ourselves. We have this ideal that, that we think we ought to reach or be 
This is what Peter had to be delivered from. But here's the problem. We can never be sure that we've been good enough. We can never be sure that we've been anything enough. We can never be sure. And that uncertainty leaves us vulnerable. That uncertainty leaves us weak. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. The problem is we can never be sure we've gotten there. We always have this sense or fear that somehow we're falling short. We're doing what Adam did. We're trying to make our own covering for our own nakedness. And we're never sure it's enough. Romans 7, we're going to see a a man, Paul, and his struggle with this. Romans chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. Most theologians believe this is Paul writing about the inward struggle that we're talking about this morning, this inward struggle um, after he was saved. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now see if you can relate to any of this. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that's the thing I don't practice. And what I hate to do, that I do. For then, if then I do what I will not to do, then I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present to me. I want to do what's right, but how to perform it, the good, I can't, I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that's the very thing I walk out of church and do right away. That's a little loose translation. <laughs> now if I do what I will not to do, then it's no longer I who do it. It's not my spirit, man, but it's sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that's evil, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God in the, my inward man, in my Bible. I re- love the word of God. But I see another law, verse 23, and my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. Paul's talking about this struggle, this weight of this struggle. I'm trying to be right in God's eyes. I'm trying to live up to what I know ought to be done and I just can't ever get there. The more I try, the harder I try, the more I seem to fall short. Am I the only one that ever goes through this? Only four others you. Okay, that's good. Well, the rest of you, my goodness. Wow. Praise the Lord. As much as he willed, as, and Paul was passionate, he still had this sense that he was always falling short. He wasn't measuring up. And here it is. Here's why Satan does this. Because it leaves us weak. I ran across this quote from Charles Finney years ago. Charles was a, Charles was a, Finney was a lawyer who got saved and became an amazing evangelist, one of the most powerful evangelists we've ever had. One of the great awakenings, was, he was a major part of that. And this is a little book he wrote called, uh, um, uh, it's a good little book, <laughs> Power from on High. And it's about the power of the Holy Spirit. But he mugs this quote in there. This has really struck me because this is where I've struggled and with so many Christians struggle. He said, multitudes seem to satisfy themselves with a hope of eternal life for themselves, but they never really get ready to dismiss the question of their own salvation, leaving that as settled with Christ. They don't get ready to accept the great commission to work for the salvation of others because their faith is so weak that they do not steadily leave the question of their own salvation in the hands of Christ. Here's Satan's scheme. If he can get all your energies poured into trying to measure up trying to be a better Christian, trying to be better this, trying to be so that you feel better about yourself, then we're never at a place where we actually can go out and spread good news to somebody else because we're really not walking in the good news ourselves. So let me ask you a question just to ask yourself. Don't answer it now. Don't answer it out loud. You may embarrass yourself. Is this gospel really really good news to you? I mean, don't answer me. Because that means you haven't thought about it. Is it really good news? Because that's what gospel means. 
Because when your favorite team wins, that's good news. For Patriots fans last year, this year, they won. That's good news. We tell people good news because we know it's good. Because we know it, to us it's good. But so many Christians are trying to tell good news that they haven't received the goodness of it for themselves yet. Because we're struggling with this weight of guilt, this weight of shame. I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough. I'm not. When I stand before God, my goodness, I'm going to fall so far short of what He requires. It's a burden, so many of us. This is a burden I've struggled with. Thank goodness it doesn't end here. Verse 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, that's the answer. That with the mind I serve the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. Chapter 8 is a continuation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are faithful to come to church and pay their tithes and pray five hours a day. There's no condemnation for those who always walk in love. There's no, there's no condemnation simply for those who are in Christ Jesus. But pastor, that's too easy. It's too easy in that it takes all the burden off of me and puts all... It wasn't easy for Christ. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free. Have you been set free from something? Yes, we've been set free from this burden, this guilt. We've been set free from it. But most of us walk around as if we're still carrying that burden. Pastor Sam used to say we look like we've been baptized in pickle juice. He had a way with words. Why? Verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, the law could not make you right in God's eyes. The works, the good things you did could not make you right in God's eyes because it depended on your flesh, your effort to do it. What the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God did. Not will do, not is in the process of doing, God did. What the law could not do for you, what your efforts could not do, God did for you. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was, he was flesh. I don't want to get into that right now. On account of sin, He condemned your sin in His flesh. That's why there's now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. There was condemnation, but the condemnation for your sin, actually for all sin, was poured out on His Son 2,000 years ago, along with His anger, His wrath, and His judgment. That's why there is no anger from God at you. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God is not angry at you. He is at peace with you. Romans 5.1 says that we are at peace with God. God's at peace with you. Verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. See, God's righteousness has to be fulfilled. God didn't, God's mercy does, is not like so many of our parents today. They just say, well, I'm going to be merciful. I'll just pretend I didn't see it. I know I told you if you do it again, I'll spank you or give you time out. We won't go there. <laughs> Don't encourage me. <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. It was good. See, we think mercy is like most parents say, well, you know, I told you if you do it, you'll get a spanking, but I'll give you another chance. That's not mercy, that's lying. There's a verse in Romans, I think it's in 5, that says that he might be just and the justifier. See, God had to find a way to wash away our sins and yet still be just. See, if he just forgot our sins and he just said, well, I'll remember your sins no more, which he does say, but there's a reason why he can remember them more. He paid for them himself. But if he just said, look, I'm God, I can do what I want, I'll remember them more, he would no longer be righteous because he'd broken his own law. 
So the righteous requirement of the law had to be satisfied. But the righteous requirement will be satisfied in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That means you are putting your trust in what the Spirit did, not on what your flesh can do. All right, let's move on. And this is the struggle that ended when Jesus said it was finished. Let's go to Hebrews 4. It's just, Hebrews just brings it home so much. This was written at a time when Jewish believers had been scattered outside of their homeland. And so they were being tempted to go back under the old law and try to trust Jesus and the old law. So we're going to go to Hebrews 4 first of all. Just a couple of verses and then I'm going to build on this. Hebrews 4, 4. There's a lot more I could read in here, but I don't want to take the time this morning. For he's spoken at a certain place on the seventh day in this way. This goes back to Genesis 1. And God rested on the seventh day from his works. This is the root of the Sabbath. God took a Sabbath on the seventh day. Again in this place he said, There shall not enter my rest. So I'm at the first generation of Israel. See, their entering into the promised land was intended to be a rest. I'll show you in a minute that. Let's go now to um, uh, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them a rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. So it's talking about here that, that the, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, God's plan was to take the Israelites out of Egypt into a land he promised them. Hence it's called the promised land. But when they got there, they wouldn't go in. We talked about this a few weeks ago. They wouldn't go in because they never developed their confidence in God that God would do what He said He would do. Instead, they were moved by the obstacles, the giants that they saw there and the enemies that they saw there. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is God intended to put, send them in this land and in this land to give them rest. But they wouldn't enter into the rest that God had provided for them. We don't have a chance to look there, but the beginning of chapter 4 says, because they wouldn't mix the word God gave them with faith. God had promised them rest, but they wouldn't mix it with faith. They wouldn't believe Him. Instead, they try to handle it on their own, which is exactly what we're talking about today. So now let's go back to verse 8 here. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would have not afterward have spoken of another day. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that rest that is, is in the book of Joshua, that's not the rest that ultimately God was talking about. Verse 9, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that's the rest that God did on the day that he finished creating the earth. For he, that's us, who have entered into God's rest, the rest that he's referred to earlier, was that when God finished the creation, he rested on the seventh day. So this verse is saying, he who has entered into that rest has himself ceased from his own works as God did from his. I was reading it earlier, years ago, getting ready for a Wednesday night. I was reading it, that verse earlier, where it says, and and, and, and on the seventh day God rested from his works. It dawned on me, because we think of rest because we're tired. Oh, man, I need some rest today because I am bushed. I can't imagine God came to the end of six days of creation and said, Oh, man. Oh, Woo, was that hard work. Oh, boy, I better take another day and I better, I better chill out, but I need some iced tea. I, oh, Oh, this stuff of just speaking things out is exhausting. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, wow. It's hard work. No, 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 no. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because the work was done. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's the rest we're to enter into. We're to enter into His finished work to redeem us. His finished work to justify us. His finished work to make us complete. Many of you are struggling with that this morning because you look at yourself and say, but I'm not complete. I'm not that. Ah, glad you asked the question. That's why we're talking about this this morning. When God rested at the end, it was not because He was tired, it's because the work was finished. There are a number of places, we're going to see one of them, where it says Jesus, when He finished, entered into heaven, He sat down 
at the right hand of the Father. You sit down when the job's done. It's in a number of places where he sat down. Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3. All these notes are online, so you can get the references and everything there. Our effort is simply to... In fact, what he says in here is, so therefore we are to labor to enter into His rest. That sounds paradoxical there. If you're working to rest, but it takes effort to put aside our own effort. It takes effort to believe that the work is done. It takes effort to to resist our own flesh's temptation to get up and, and work on something and try to fix something ourselves. That takes work and effort to renew our mind and come to a realization, revelation. It's over. My standing before God has been established if I'm in Christ. That's the key. This isn't for everybody that is on the face of the earth today. It's available to everybody, but it's only for those that are in. Every time there's a promise like this, it talks about those who are in Christ or through Christ. Galatians, I'm going to move on quickly. Galatians, uh, Colossians 2, verse 9. Just put it up there. And I'll... For in Him, that's in Christ, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, verse 10. And you are complete in Him. This verse began to change my life. I'm struggling because I don't feel like I'm complete. I'm struggling because I don't feel like I measure up. I'm struggling because I... Notice, it's all about I. But I'm complete in Him. He makes... That's wrong. He doesn't make up the difference. He is everything. I don't bring a little bit of righteousness to Him and He supplements it with all the rest that's needed. This is where I think our thinking is. Well, I'm, I can bring something. I mean, I've, been, I've prayed a lot this week. I've, I've done good things. So I'm bringing you something. My intentions are good. This is the one God had to get me with. He says, if your really intentions were good, you'd have done it. Wow. Oh. That takes it. That, that removes that excuse, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I wanted to. Well, then why didn't you? <laughs> but that's... God's love exposing my self-righteousness. That's God's love exposing. You're still trying to add something to this. We've got to come to the place, and this is going to, we've got to come to the place where we come naked before Him. And I mean, don't mean your clothes. We come just as they were in the garden. I don't bring anything to you of my own merit. My good intentions, my bad. See, the, the good is just as va- invalid as the bad. Because it's all based on me. I'll show you this. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll bring this to a close. Or we'll end it with a claim. I'll bring it to a close. Now with all that background, listen to this. For the law, that's the Old Testament way. Having a shadow of the good things to come. A shadow is not the real thing. It gives you an idea of what it looks like and not the very image of the thing, can never by the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year make those who approach perfect. I have time to really get into it, but I, there's a course I used to teach uh, called the, the, the Tabernacle of Moses in the Wilderness. That's a book I wrote about it. Um, and it, it's, God provided a system of sacrifices in the Old Testament where you would bring an animal to the priest and they would inspect it, and they would go through certain rituals, and they would sacrifice it, and then they would burn it on an altar, of in, on an altar, a brazen altar, and the, the, the heat in that was well over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And there would be a constant smell in the camp of burning flesh. If you ever smell burning flesh, you never forget it. And they had to bring it year after year. They had to bring it, so you'd bring your sacrifice, and the sacrifice would just cover your sin. So you're clean now. You got everything straightened out with God because I brought this little lamb and they're, they're going to take it and sacrifice it. And on my way back home, this sweet young thing passes me by. Look. I better go get another lamb. 
<laughs> the fact the, the fact that they had to continually offer them was an intentional reminder by God this isn't solving the problem this is just covering it over oh by the way in that tabernacle there were no chairs to sit on because the work was never done but there are no sacrifices verse 3 oh verse 2 is important for then there would not have ceased to be offered for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin the writer of Hebrews saying if under the Old Testament those sacrifices of lambs and bulls was effective they would no, have no more guilt from sin because it would have been taken care of but because it wasn't they had a constant reminder of guilt of that weight of that burden because it was never lifted from them it was just covered over verse 3 but in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins year every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins let's go down to verse 11 but every high priest stands ministering daily talking about in the Old Testament offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sin but this man Jesus after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstools for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified verse 22 so let us as a result of this remember Adam and Eve they hid from the presence of God because of that sense of guilt and shame and they were guilty let us draw near with a true, that means a sincere heart in full assurance of faith faith in what? faith that it's finished faith that what he did paid for your sin faith that there's no struggle anymore as far as God's concerned faith that God's not angry at you God's not counting up your failures and your judgments against you they're all covered under the cross they were paid for before the foundation of the world they've been paid in full so that you can stand before God clean and holy and righteous Ephesians 1 says that we might be holy and without blame before him in Christ see your righteousness doesn't come from anything you do or your unrighteousness doesn't come from anything you do once you come to Christ you're joined to him and so whatever he is you are now if he's righteous you're righteous if he's faithful you're faithful if he's good you're good it didn't come from you at all it came from him but because you're joined to him whatever he is you are and when you see that you come running openly and boldly because there's nothing between you just as there was nothing between Adam and Eve and God in that instance you could be free and open look what he says here let us draw near with a sincere heart full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience that means from a guilty conscience yes, right. but pastor you don't know what I did yesterday I don't want to know what you did yesterday but once you take it to him First John 1 John 1.9 says he is faithful if we confess our sins he is faithful 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 to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness our job you confess it he does the rest you have to be sincere but, but isn't that going to leave us that if this is all paid for we can just go do what we want then you're not in Christ 
Because you're in Christ, wherever you go, He goes too. If you're in Christ, wherever He goes, you go. But if you're in Christ, wherever you go, He goes. Because you're one. You're in Him. I asked God for an image of this. I've got to close this. An image of this a number of years ago. And I saw this picture of this beautiful, pristine swimming pool. I mean, crystal clear, like you'd see at some resort. I mean, just so clear. And then I saw myself coming up with this eyedropper of jet black, eradicable ink. And I squeezed that drop. And that black ink dropped down into that crystal clear water and got absorbed in the water. And I couldn't find that black ink anymore. And God said, that black ink is your sin. And your sin was swallowed up in the cross. And I remember it no more. I remember it no more. So verse 23 says, So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This whole book was written because Christians were being tempted to pull away from what we talked about this morning and begin to add their own efforts in. And this is where you and I struggle. You know you're struggling because there's no freedom before Him. Even when you mess up, there's a freedom. Because Hebrews 4.16 says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy. I've lived in that verse some days. We can see mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A time of need is when you didn't do everything right. A time of need is when you blew it. And when we blow it, we're supposed to run to Him because He's there not pointing a finger at you and saying, how come you... God said to me, He says, the word again is not in my vocabulary. He says, you come to me and say, well, God, I did this again. He said, I don't remember that you did it before because it's under the blood. See, God's not sitting up there counting your sins against you. They're on the cross, paid for. This is good news. Free. Free at last. Free at last. That's the true freedom. From the weight and the burden of the guilt and the shame. What interferes with our prayer life? It's our own self-image. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I can't do this. It's all me. I'm not. I'm not. If you begin to listen to yourself in your self-talk, how much you talk about yourself. Well, I'm, 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 I'm and how little we talk. But what, see, when you really see this, he gets more glory. He, he's everything. He's everything. He said, well, but we lose by that. Adam and Eve didn't think they lost. You gain. You gain. You gain. Praise the Lord. Father, I, I don't know whether I got out what was in me or not. I just have to trust this now to the Holy Spirit. This is something I've learned in my life where a light has to go on. Because we know the principle we can sit in church and say, yes, amen, that's good. But boy, Lord, Father, when, when, when it goes off in me, I'm a different person. When it goes off in me, there's such joy. There's such freedom. There's just, there's just worship. Worship comes naturally from us when we see how free we've been made. That the battle's over. It's finished once and for all. Our past sins, our present sins, and even future sins. For sin has been paid for. And we are belong into your family. We've been joined to Christ. We are one with Christ and He is everything. And the doors of heaven have been made open to us by your infinite amazing grace. And I pray, Father, as I release this word now into the hearts and minds of these precious people, that your Holy Spirit will begin to to shine His light on this truth as only He can down in the depths of His heart, of our hearts. For your word says that our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, nor has it entered the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love Him. But your Spirit's been given to us 
to reveal to us the deep secrets of what God has done for us. I put this into your hands, Holy Spirit, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.